Welcome to US Rail Journeys, Series 2. In this series, I travel from LA to Chicago on the Southwest Chief, then from Chicago to New Orleans on both Amtrak's City of New Orleans train and a rail replacement bus. I then travel back from New Orleans to Los Angeles on the Sunset Limited. I also get to travel on the San Joaquins the Coast Starlight and the Pacific Surfliner, in all over 6,300 miles in 14 days. Welcome to episode 13. I'm continuing my journey across Louisiana on the Sunset Limited. We're passing through an area on one side, yards servicing the river cargoes, the river ships. And on the other side, a community. Children at play in the schoolyard. And more, but smaller workshops. Small estates of homes. And at every corner, trucks, cars, you name it. All kinds of motor vehicles. And all they need to do is take the train. This small town even boasts a comforting hotel from the sign I've just passed. I think a lot of the homes here in Morgan City may have seen better days. I cannot believe it's just the sun beating down and ruining the paintwork that was put on last year. The water's high and the water is flowing fast down the river. It's no wonder that there's been flooding in certain areas. Now we're getting back into the wooded, swampy area. On one side I can see buildings behind the trees, workshops, major road, people towing their boats, looking for water. And then in front of me, forest, swampland, the beauty. I'm with Josh Moore who's travelling with us today. Josh, why are you on the train? Basically, it's a mode of transportation right now for work. However, I choose to take the train as opposed to traveling in any other way just because it's, it's nicer, it's, it's quicker than a car, and actually what people forget, it's, to me, it's quicker than a plane. And by that, I mean going through security, if you have a layover, it's uh, just more relaxing. And, for instance, you meet in- interesting individuals and can do something like this. You say it's, you're going to work... So when you get off the train, you'll be going to the office? Actually, when I get off the train, I will be going to a rent-a-car place to rent a car, unfortunately, and then going to where we're working at is uh, what's a place called Acadia Nature Preserve. Long story short, uh, I work for the National Park Service, going throughout the country helping underserved communities, federal funds develop parks and playgrounds for those communities that don't have the funds to develop exactly that parks and playgrounds for their cities and communities. 
How long have you been doing this? Started with NPS in 2000, December 2008. So this December will be just 11 years. It must be a job you enjoy. It's great. It's a great job. It's one of the things, uh, a benefit of it, being a civil servant. You, it's not necessarily the money, but the fact that I get to travel all over the continental U.S. doing this, going to new cities I don't think I would ever necessarily be in unless it was for work. But you kind of meet interesting people, see the beauty of some smaller cities that, quote-unquote, tourists only kind of go to smaller cities across the U.S. And then in the long run, hopefully with the type of work, help those communities and, and, and people out. You were saying earlier that you spent a bit of time in the U.K., that's, that's true. When we, when we first met, I kind of brought up that I did my overseas, did some undergrad work at Keele University. And if any of you listeners know, Keele is in uh, Stoke-on-Trent, stayed in Hanley. So the, the quote-unquote joke is for any UK listeners, people always ask me, so you came for two years to our lovely country and decided to stay in Stoke. It's no knock against Stoke. I'm a huge Potters fan, so, but... Yeah, I did, did some undergrad work there in um, community planning um, and then came back over, finished my last two years back in the U.S. Where in the U.S. are you from originally? So originally from a small town in Mississippi, which is in the southern part of the U.S., but have been in another southern city, Atlanta, Georgia, oh, I don't know now, for the last 16 years. Thank you very much. There is a method to our madness. We have a seat for everyone. Also, ladies and gentlemen, the long-standing railroad tradition of community seating will be taking place here in the dining car. That means if you're sitting in a party of three or less, we're making some new friends today. This announcement is for the sleeping car passengers. When you come in, we're going to have you fill out a little bit of homework. Well, all you need to know is your room number, your car number, and your signature. Just keep that in mind when you're coming in for lunch. That's how we know you are in the sleeping car, and we will not charge you for your meal. With that being said, ladies and gentlemen, the dining car is now calling in 12 o'clock lunch reservations. If you're holding the lovely 12 o'clock lunch reservation, please make your way to the dining car at this time. We're now out into more agricultural land, passing on one side yet another freight tanker train. We're putting on a good speed, probably around about 70 miles an hour. And every few minutes, we come to a road crossing. Somebody just passing said they haven't got their train legs yet. We've just been going through a small community that almost looks like it's hidden in a forest clearing. And then you come to a main road. The countryside we're going through now, semi-agriculture. Lots of waterways, dikes, scrapyard. Oh, there are a lot of scrapyards in this country. And again, more small factory units. This country really is a mixture of everything thrown together. Short while ago, I walked all the way down to the back of the train. See how many people are in coach. I would think we've probably got no more than 30 coach passengers split between the two carriages at the current time. Though the conductor did assure me there will be people getting on as we go along the track. Such a pity that so few people are using these trains. (laughs) 
All the time at the moment we're going forest, small community, maybe a large pond, maybe a bit of swamp land, may even be some very small in the American scale fields. It is an ever-changing scene. Because of all the water, the swamp land, the rivers, this is a very fertile part of the United States. In front of me I see crops already growing well. On the other side of the track, trailers, rusting tin buildings, a suggestion that there isn't much wealth in this part of the world, though where there is wealth, it is very wealthy. The horn is sounding, the speed has reduced, we're going through yet more small townships. House over there with a tree through its roof. The horn is sounding because every roadway we come to, quite often they may be an ungated or only partially gated level crossings. And the horn is there to warn people that we're coming. I'm told by somebody who's been following our progress on the map that we're roughly halfway between Shriver and New Iberia. That means we're certainly running somewhat late. Just passing a cemetery, very much like the cemeteries in New Orleans. I wonder if they also work on the principle of natural cremation. I know I've said it many times before, but I just cannot get over this kind of continual getting to places which look as though, in many cases, people have just given up. We're picking up a bit of speed now, and on both sides of me there are fields with this crop that I really have no idea what it is, but it's growing in mounded-up earth. But it certainly isn't potatoes. I have to say that some of the track along this route really is in need of repair. That train sometimes is bouncing around like there's no tomorrow, even though we're going at 10 miles an hour. We're trying to walk along the train, maybe you'd be better if you were drunk because it lurches and lurches and lurches, like a ship in a short sea. I was trying to find out some information about the crop that we may be seeing. I have found one interesting statistic that the medium household income at the last census was $42,196, which puts it at 48th place in the United States. I think the fields that I've been passing with the crops that have been earthed up are probably sugarcane. There is a lot of sugarcane grown in Louisiana. If you thought Iberia meant Spain, you're probably right, because at one stage, Louisiana was under Spanish control. What can I tell you about New Iberia? The town exudes a Native American, Spanish and French influence under its moss-laden, majestic oaks. There are certainly many oaks as we're coming into town. Legend has it that the pirate Jean Lafitte buried treasure beneath the oaks lining the bayou. Nearby Avery Island houses Tabasco sauce manufacturer McIlhenny, as well as one of the largest salt mines. If you buy Tabasco in the UK, you're probably buying the McIlhenny Tabasco sauce made here. 
The station opened in 1900 and was used by 1,920 passengers in 2013. The track, as we're going into New Iberia, is somewhat bouncy. The driver must be sitting on his horn as we're coming into New Iberia. The train is slowing to a halt as we cross yet another level crossing. New Iberia is one of those stops that I love where the train stops in one place and then has to pull up a bit further along to allow more passengers to get into the train. I'm guessing that based on the number of people stood on the platform, we've probably got about another 20 coach passengers boarding. I don't know if anyone got off, but if 20 coach passengers are boarding today, that's a good sign. Considering that this train only runs three days a week, and if 1920 passengers used it in the whole of 2013, 20 passengers today would be a significant increase on that number and hopefully repeated throughout the year. That's good news. The station here at New Iberia, I think, could be said to be in need of a bit of tender, loving care. sounding we're now pulling out of New Iberia. Our next stop should be Lafayette in about 30 minutes but as we know anything can happen traveling by train here in the US. I think we're running about one hour and five minutes late. As we pull out of New Iberia we're passing a nursery shop and crossing yet more level crossings as you can hear from the horn sounding lunch is well in progress as we go along more mixed everything a wheelie bin on its side a satellite dish next to the tracks pointing in our direction they must have terribly interfered with television because every time a train goes past they must lose signal some big houses in the background large lawns colonnades and beautiful trees mown grass I think we're at the wealthier end of town we've picked up speed now must be flying along at about 70 miles an hour road running next to us and in the distance a sight of water all styles of houses you see here Hacienda Spanish style Colonial America clapboard and derelict and in the distance, a derelict school bus on a piece of green grass with shrubs growing from it. So the journey continues. The sun shines, and just the other side of a row of trees is another track, a large grain silo with freight wagons being filled underneath it. I wonder where they'll be going. 
We stopped at Lafayette, situated at the centre of Louisiana's Acadiana region, an area that consists of low, gentle hills in the northern section, marshes and bayous in the south. Stretching from just west of New Orleans to the Texas border and to about a hundred miles inland, it is mainly populated by Francophones, in this case descendants of the French Cajuns, exiled from Canada's maritime provinces, particularly Nova Scotia. The land is filled with fields of rice and sugarcane. Due to the Cajun culture's love of good food, it has one of the highest numbers of restaurants per capita of any U.S. city. The original station was burned down in 2001 and the current station opened in 2002. It served nearly 6,600 passengers in 2013. Sadly, it's all clouded over now. But our progress is quite rapid. We passed paddies of rice and now some scrubby land going past. Trub-like trees but nothing that looks like it's croppable. The fields that we're passing are getting larger. There's still a lot of woodland, but in between the woodland there are fields not as big as those in the Midwest, but certainly much larger than the fields that we saw earlier. There are a lot of oak trees in this area. And then silos, agricultural machinery, scraped earth, and then more woodland. Just passing an area where there are what look like dredged lakes. I wonder if it's paddy fields that are being refurbished. We go through Welsh another small town on our journey. The train is now nearing Lake Charles, passing yet more sidings of freight trucks. I've been learning quite a lot about the rice industry whilst I've been sat here. And the silos, they're known as rice bins because the rice is kept there before transporting out to other parts of the US and, of course, the world. I'm sat next to Don, who grew up on a rice farm and therefore knows this area extremely well because it's where he comes from. Good afternoon, Don. Tell me about growing up on a rice farm. Well, it was a simple life. We also had cattle, about 100 head of cattle that we, we had, but mainly rice at the time. No soybeans, which at this time is soybeans. I grew up in the late 40s and the 50s. It was a simple life. You had to get up, drive a tractor, plow the fields, just go around and around and around. And, but the good part of that required irrigation, and we had an irrigation well, roughly an 8-inch well that put out about 3,000 gallons a minute. And we had nice, cool water in the middle of the summer that was, the sun was just scorching and the humidity high, but it was refreshing to go swimming as a young kid. Uh, the rice was planted two ways. It was planted mechanically, it would drop it under the surface approximately uh, an inch or two. And then the other way would be by airplane. They would flood the fields and we had to go in there with a the tractor, muddy up the water to get the solids in suspension. And then the airplane would come and, and spread the seeds 
it would stay underwater for approximately three days and, and the water would be uh, let out of the field and the rice would come up. It was a way to control the grass and then it would be about a month, the rice would be, gets about four or five inches tall and then the field is flooded again until about three weeks before harvest. The growing time is roughly anywhere from 110 to 120 days, usually from May, sometime a little closer to Easter. Harvest start about in July on into September. Uh, that was in 50, 60 years ago. At this time, the harvest has started in early August and goes only for about six weeks. So that was my time growing up, and I was the youngest of four boys, and uh, my brother got the farm, and I didn't, thank God. I wanted something stable. I got in the oil field. Wow. And when you were in the oil fields, I presume you traveled the world. Uh, yes, I did. Uh, South America, Canada, the Beaufort Sea, Scotland, the, those places there. Just enough to enjoy myself, but not enough to get tired of it. Now, you mentioned that as we passed some of the rice fields that there were crawfish cages or something in there? The crawfish industry in South Louisiana and, and goes into Texas is, is really gaining ground. It started about 30 years ago. When I was growing up, we had boiled crawfish, just like you boil lobster. In fact, they call them a mini lobster. We grew up, and right now it's a big industry. It is growing every year. My nephew that's now farming the farm that I grew up on also raised crawfish. And do they keep them in tanks in the rice fields or in a special area? What it is, once they're harvested, before they sell them, what we'll do at the farm is they have to take the mud out of the system. So what they'll do is run about 24 hours of fresh water through them, pump water through the these tanks, these half tanks, and it cleans, it cleans them. And way to do it, if you just want to have uh, 50 pounds of crawfish to boil, they usually just put them in salt water and it regurgitates the, the mud out of the system. So it's a cleaner crawfish once you boil them. Now you tell me that you've made this journey a number of times. You must love coming along this route. Yes. I usually come this way, and I have a, a niece, and I also have a daughter that lives in Houston. It's about a six-hour train ride, four-hour drive, and also the main office of the company I work for. It's the oil field service company. Uh, had the home office in Houston, so I made quite a few trips there, mostly by car, but every once in a while by train. Which company were you working for, or do you work for? I work for Baker Oil Tools. They're an international company. General Electric bought them out a year or so ago, so they're, they're still a worldwide company. At the time I was working for them, I retired about 10 years ago. We had uh, about 10,000 in Baker Oil Tools, and the other three or four divisions had a total of about 30,000 worldwide. Do you enjoy traveling by train? Every once in a while, but I, I wouldn't do it all the time. I'd, I'd rather go by car. The reason you'd like to go by car is because it's faster? It's faster, and I have uh, transportation when I get to my destination. Thank you very much. It's lovely to talk to you.
this podcast has been produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio. I thank the passengers and crew of Amtrak's train number one, the Sunset Limited, for making this podcast possible. Thank you for listening. Please join me again in two weeks. Thank you.